Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I have with me David Mandel. David, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Happy to be here. So David is an emerging tech super angel investor. I like that term. We're going to get into that. And managing partner of Emerging Ventures Capital. He has invested in over 500 startups prior to his current career in venture capital. David built, operated, and exited four different successful businesses in the insurance and finance industries over a 28-year period. So David, given that you've been in the game for a long time, you've done the operating company thing, you've had multiple exits. Why get into early stage tech investing? It seems like a lot of work, a lot of brain damage, and a very challenging place to invest. Hmm, That's a a good lead in to why I'm here, what I do. I was an operator most of my life. And I Never actually intended to be in insurance or in finance. And, you know, it's a long story how I got into that and not relevant. But going through college, I was a math and computer science major, undergraduate, really wanted to work in AI and realized that it just wasn't the right time and place at the time. It just wasn't there. I did get my master's in applied math without the computer, you know, and left computer science and was actually on the path for a doctorate in, in mathematics when I realized that, you know, it was kind of a bad time for academics. Uh, you know, defense industry was collapsing and you had all these math PhDs running around with, uh, you know, trying to teach high school, or do whatever they can. There was just no, no jobs for academics at that time. So, you know, it's before the internet 
was cool before anything. It was right, you know, at the wrong time. That was around between 1989 to 1991 for reference. And uh, dropped out, got into business, turned out well. You know, a lots of turns and tribulations, but uh, built and exited, as you mentioned, four different businesses. Most of them were kind of on the underwriting side, uh, risk-bearing businesses, got to be more on the product side my whole life, designing great user-friendly products and really enjoyed that side of it and got to use some of my skill sets with that. And to fast forward, 2011, 2012, somewhere around that time frame. So that goes back over 10 years now. I started to see vendors coming to me. So at the time I had a pretty large auto insurance underwriter, Alliance United Insurance Company, which I eventually sold to Kemper. And uh, I had also at the same time a subprime auto lender, which was top finance company and was a regional uh, auto lender. And between those two, we started to see a lot of vendors coming to us that were what we would now call you know, uh, tech startups and their insure tech and fintech offering creative products, innovative products using what seemed like real AI, natural language processing and so forth. And it really piqued my attention. It's like, wow, that's what I wanted to do 25 years ago and couldn't. And you guys have this now. It really works. You know, they're doing things like taking all your unstructured note from claims and giving you back insights overnight about it and tying the dots between you know, relationships there and what seemingly unrelated items and things that you know claims people try to do manually. And they were doing that and all kinds of things. That just piqued my interest to say, wow, that's here. That's exciting. I started to dig in because otherwise I was in my own little hole, just focusing in the insurance world and the finance world on our peer groups and so forth, and didn't realize what's going on really in Silicon Valley. I was kind of ignorant to the revolution in Silicon Valley with the tech startups. And that's where I said, I got to get into that. And I really just started to dig in, go up to conferences, go to events, uh, talk to a lot of GPs that were running funds that were doing tech and immersed myself in that ecosystem and started to become an angel investor, joined angel groups and so forth. And really just started to really spend a lot of time around the tech startup ecosystem because I was just intrigued. You know, it was just out of nowhere to me that this all was there. It was a slow build. It was obviously there for a while on the slow buildup, but it was a surprise to me. I was caught off guard and it's like, wow, I have to know what's going on and I got to get involved. And I started investing. And the more I did that, the more I got enamored by that world and started to be disillusioned with my day job, so to speak, uh, to a point where, you know, fast forward a couple of years and I, and I made a deliberate decision to say, you know, I'm going to exit. My, my day jobs. I'm going to get hire bankers and do a process and get out of my operating companies because I love what's going on in tech and I want to be all in on that right now. Uh, so I had a deliberate exit to, so I can focus on what I thought was going to be investing in tech in one way or another in multiple forms and honestly never envisioned managing other people's money. It was never thought I'd be a fund manager or anything like that. It was really, I just want to invest in tech. I want to be involved. I want to maybe even start some, uh, you know, some tech startups where, you know, in a sense, like a venture studio or be like executive chairman of something and hire some amazing, bright young people to help run them. But at the end, it turned out that I kind of got hooked on the angel investing side and realized that that's the path to go on and went all in on that. And so from then through now, I have invested in several hundred startups. And around 2019, I 
you know, wind up talking to enough other people from my prior life who didn't see me around and say, what are you doing? Where's your new insurance company? Or what are you up to nowadays? And I'd be so excited just telling them, no, I'm not doing any of that. I'm 100% an angel on this thing. And they'd be like, what's that? And I would tell them all about it and maybe refer them to some angel groups. At the end, I realized there's enough people who want to do what I'm doing, but don't want to do the work and don't know where to start or don't have the time. And I found it very satisfying. and I really enjoyed it. And I thought other ones too, but it turns out a lot of people don't want to do that. They found it like the way you describe it as just a lot of work. To me, it was a lot of fun. There's nothing I can enjoy more than spending most of my day talking to the brightest minds out there that are literally inventing the future and talking to them as they're inventing it and having them dumb it down to me so I can understand it because they want my money. So that was great. And eventually, fast forward 2019, I started a fund so others can co-invest with me. And we made Emerging Ventures Fund 1. And uh, that was just one year's worth of investments, basically. We made 28 investments out of that fund. That went well. So we said, okay, let's do Fund 2. I brought on my partner, Bennett Cole, for Fund 2. He was one of my LPs in Fund 1, and he was one of my investment bankers that helped me exit one of my prior businesses. And he retired at that point from investment banking and liked what I was doing and wanted to get involved. So he helps me now with due diligence. And it's just the two of us for the investment side. It's myself and Bennett. And I spend most of my day just talking to startups, both the ones that are looking for funding and the ones that are already in our portfolio um, as follow-up. So this transition from angel investing to being a proper venture capitalist, could you maybe define what those roles are in your opinion and experience and what differentiates the two based on the journey that you've been on? Sure. So angel investors are individuals and the fund is just a fiduciary where we have other people's money. So I'm my own biggest limited partner, but the fund is, you know, a, a a structure of, it's just a Delaware partnership. It really is just allowing others to co-invest with me. It's a Delaware partnership and I happen to manage that money and it just allows us to write bigger checks. So, you know, as an individual, I might write a $25,000 check. I can write a lot of them and I don't have to be as disciplined and I can do things that I might not even otherwise consider doing. For the fund, we have a specific thesis and I have to be more diligent. I have to document everything a little better. So it forces me to be disciplined because I have a structure and I have other people's money that I'm a fiduciary for. About a quarter of each of the funds, fund one and fund two, are my own money. So that way, when I'm investing from the fund, I'm still putting in my own money at about the same rate I would have before, but I get to magnify that with, say, 30 other people's money attached to it. So instead of writing a $25,000 angel check, I might be able to write a $200,000 check from a fund. And it's better for everybody else. So a lot of work, as you mentioned, to do all the due diligence for both myself and the startup who we're working with. And they much rather obviously get a $200,000 check than a $25,000 check from us in that round. And also having the fund gives us the credibility and access to better deals and more of the founder's time. So it's just a win-win to have a fund structure. As an angel investing directly is often easier as a group. Angel groups are amazing. And there's a lot of them out there and they that do a very good job. And then again, you're collectively doing due diligence as a group so that even though 
we're each writing small checks, but we're doing group due diligence and then collectively each writing our check where the founder may actually pick up a half a million dollars on a successful raise just from one angel group. For example, Pasadena Angels, where I'm a member and also on the board, has approximately 120 members at the moment and it fluctuates, but they're all accredited investors on any particular deal. If it goes through the process successfully, they may get investment from, say, 20 to 30 of the members. So they can collect a decent amount of money from a group of angels all at one time by going through a process with, it, with, 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 the, uh, with the different angel groups around the country. That's a great way for startups to get started, to raise their first round before they go out for their larger institutional rounds. Uh, and so in essence, I look at my fund as kind of a glorified angel fund. Others, you know, you can call it a micro VC or you can call it an angel fund. It's in a sense doing the same kind of thing that angel investors do, but with larger checks and with a formal process and structure. So given the volume of investing you did as an angel, what are the lessons learned, best practices that people listening are dipping their toe in the water? What are some lessons that you would impart to them about kind of the best practices or right way to do it? So everybody has a different thesis. I know what I'm looking for. And I have, a, like I said, I have an underwriter's mentality. So I always wear, in a sense, an underwriter hat. And I kind of reverse engineering the next step. I say, okay, at the high level, if we take a step back, if you look at institutional VCs, like your typical Silicon Valley VCs will gladly tell you, like, if we're going to go into 20 startups this year, I'm okay if 19 fails, as long as one of them's a home run. You know, if I can get that unicorn and I don't look at it that way. And angel investors don't look at it that way. Angel investors typically are looking for like a 10x return. And they're saying, okay, half of what we go into will fail and half of them will have a positive exit. And if that positive exit can average 10x, then that gives us a blended 5x on the whole portfolio. And that's not a bad return even after cost and whatever else has to go on, that's still over a 3x net return. Considering the holding is seven to 10 years, that's still a great IRR. So that's really the math behind it. And what you're looking for is, so you're looking for those startups can have that 10x return and that can get there. And if you take a step back to say, okay, if we're investing typically at that kind of pre-seed or seed stage, then the number one Thing you're looking for is a startup that will truly be venture scalable. They can these guys, the founders, and this business and the product that they're living, be venture scalable. Can they, let's say in 12 to 18 months, raise a large Series A from large VCs and then move on, kind of graduate from us? And that's the main criteria. So yeah, of course, you have to like the founder and the product and everything else. But once you do that, the number one reason for saying no after you like somebody is that it might not be venture scalable. You look at that, it's like, okay, that's great. And maybe it's something you can run, but I don't see you raising this. Not, I don't see a high probability of this getting us the venture exit that we need. Now, if you can't raise that Series A at at least the 3X multiple, say, in a year, you know, say next year, then I'm not going to get my 10x return either. There's a lot of great businesses like that that are just slower moving. They're not going to have the scale. They're not growing fast enough to be able to raise a large round. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, there's many others that I think are just going to fail. They're going to run out of money and not hit profitability. And that's a different story. But even as many good businesses, 
that aren't meant to be venture-backed. And if they're not meant to be venture-backed, I think angel investors shouldn't invest. I think the number one mistake angel investors make is investing in businesses that are decent small businesses, but are not venture scalable, and therefore they'll never get an exit. And what they do, and uh, all angel groups have a ton of these, and I have a portfolio full of a ton of these that I call them zombies. The zombie companies are not failures, but they're not successes either. And I don't know how I'll ever get out of them because they're just not, they turned in, they came in very aggressive, wanting to grow. They had a plan that was to grow and raise venture capital. And it just didn't work out that way. So they didn't hit their milestones and they were running out of money and can't raise their next round. So what they do is they cut back expenses and then they're growing even slower. So they're kind of just surviving and they get into this survival mode and they can spend 10 years of their life kind of being zombies. And it's a shame for them because you're taking some really bright, hardworking people and they now dedicate maybe the best decade of their life to running a zombie just because they don't want to fail their investors. So they would have probably been better off never taking venture cap, you know, angel money in the first place. And once they are in that stage, they're probably better off just, you know, doing an asset sale to a competitor and, or, and shutting it down and moving on and starting something else. But they don't want to face failure. So they keep it alive, but they're not growing. And then it, and it's kind of just there and you're stuck on their cap table forever and they're stuck trying to run it forever probably not even paying themselves and you know and, and, and it's sad but that's the faith of many 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 early stage startups that go through the angel round is that yes they'll get a few angels to give them some money and they see that this is that they like it they get in they try to grow they start spending some money and then quickly they run out of that money without hitting what they need to be able to raise a large venture round and, and then they're stuck uh, so that's I said, number one thing as an angel investor to answer your question is to kind of look at the next step. If we give them the money, what's their burn rate? What's the milestones they'll need to hit to raise a large round? So you have to put on the hat of a series ABC and say, what would a VC need to see in order to give this guy, say, a $5 million check next year? And can these guys get there with their money they're raising now? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't give them any money now because they're, they're very likely to either fail or become a zombie and neither are, neither are desirable outcomes. So let's talk about investment thesis, given that perspective. You've got your website's got some great aphorisms on there. And, and the one that I like, ideas are cheap and all founders are smart. Yeah. My focus is on execution because I otherwise can't tell who's going to succeed I really wish I had a way I was trying to figure out like the underwriting algorithm for that for the last 10 years. I, it's the same thing that goes back to hiring, you know, people without skills. If you're hiring people for being, you know, so anyway, the, the point is at the early stage before launch, I cannot tell you who's going to succeed. I have no way to tell apart as a, they all seem to have, be amazingly passionate and bright, hardworking founders. And to say, this guy's going to make it and this guy's not, I have no clue. So my thesis is all about execution. It's like, show me that you can build it and that you can sell it and get people to pay for it. Now, so show me that there's demand for what that you, first of all, you can make it. Second of all, that people are willing to pay for it. And, and third, that you actually know how to find those people and get them to pay for it. That whole part, that tripod, those three parts of it is the critical part. I won't invest pre that. That's my minimum traction that I need to invest. And it's unfortunate 
There's others who claim, you know, that invest earlier. They say they invest right at inception and great ideas and great founders. And they say they bet on the people. And as much as I want to, I just don't know how to do that. I need to see the execution because every time I look at it, I see those who executed and that I fund because they've executed. I go back and look at them and say, where were they six months ago compared to the others? And I would have not bet on them. They seem like the least likely to succeed often. And yet they somehow get shit done. You know, there's guys that they might not look like the most likely to succeed at all, but they just go and so quickly build it. They'll build a product and so what seems easily to the outside get amazing traction. They can, it can be two kids that have never been in any, in, you know, in the corporate world, have no connections, have no parents that have connections, and yet they get Fortune 100 contracts for pilots and for everything else. And it's like, I don't know how, you know, kudos to them. I don't know how they do it. I couldn't do it. They do it. And it's like, wow, you guys are really amazing. I don't know how the hell you did. I would have not bet on you six months ago. I said, no way you're going to build this and no way you're going to find anyone to to pay for it. You guys, and yet they do. And yet on the other hand, I'll see guys who seem very qualified, have all the connections, have all the polish. And uh, you talk to them again two years later and they're still like writing specs and designing it and haven't built anything. (laughs) So, And that goes to this adage of team over strategy. Right. Well, but I can yes, I don't know how to pick the team. So I need them to prove to me that they know how to execute. And I, I, I have to I have to cheat. I have to take that shortcut. It's like, show me and, and then I'll give you the money. Otherwise, I can't. So I don't invest pre-launch. I need them to build it and show me that they can get traction on it. So I take that shortcut. I make them prove to me that people that they can build something that people are willing to pay for, which is kind of I almost think of it as cheating because you know that makes my life super easy. It's like okay, you know, I make the startup do all the work, and I feel bad for all the startups who come in a little earlier, saying I, I'm trying to raise the money so I can build my MVP, and it's like sorry, I can't fund you until you build the MVP and get people to pay for it. And it's like well, how am I supposed to do that? It's like I don't know. That's the friends and family round. I can't help you. It's not what we do. Uh, and I do tell them, actually, I do know the main thing you should do is go to an accelerator program because there's amazing now accelerator program. Ten years ago, that wasn't much there. Maybe, you know, Right now, there's a proliferation of accelerator programs, and many of them are very good. And if you're stuck in between in limbo, my advice to founders who don't have the resources and yet have a great idea and have some skills is, well, first of all, if you can build it yourself scrappily with a, you know, find a co-founder and just build it, just do that. Just lock yourself in the garage for three months and build it. But if you can't do that on your own still, and you need that kind of help, then go to an accelerator program because they're amazing. They will push you to get it done. They'll help you build your MVP some one way or another. And they'll then put you in front of, uh, at the end of that three-month program, three to four-month program, you're going to get put in front of a bunch of investors who will fund you from there at a much better valuation and you'll raise it much more easily than without an accelerator program. So most of them are well worth it. And they also provide a lot of resources. They provide all these free, you know, they have connections with Assure and Google and everybody else, they can get you all the free server space that you need, uh, tools that you need, and connections to other founders that you can collab with. So that's the main catalyst. Uh, so my so that's my advice to the founder side is go to Accelerator program, find some co-founders, build it, then come back to the investors. Given that sentiment and the, the Y Combinator model that you know has become 
well adopted throughout the country, you still model yourself as an anti-Silicon Valley guy. So how do you marry those two sentiments together? Good point. And by the way, Silicon Valley became anti-Silicon Valley in the last three years. Uh, so I, I was doing, saying that before the pandemic, and that was my thesis back in 2019. And the world turned upside down now. <laughs> and people are everywhere else, uh, from, from Southern California to Miami to New York to, but, to Austin and Canada. So the world has actually proven out my thesis. But Silicon Valley itself used to be very concentrated with a lot of Me Too kind of software startups. You would see 10 of everything. There was almost nothing original for a while. I was getting very disillusioned with it. And valuations were crazy. It was just too easy for everything. You know, there, every startup would have a couple of co-founders. As soon as they got funded, you know, a few people would leave and start another copy of it. And then they would exit, sell the whatever, Facebook, Google, Amazon. And then, you know, six months after that, the original co-founders would leave and start a straight. And they'll get funded to start their copy of it before they even incorporate, like the minute they're leaving, they'll be already funded at a crazy valuation just on their reputation. And it's like, okay, that's nuts. I don't want to help perpetuate that. It was just getting out of control. And yet what I saw locally, so from my angel experience, being in the local angel groups, having startups leave, I'm in Southern California, I'm in the Los Angeles area, having seeing all the university programs here, their accelerators and all their other internal incubator and accelerator programs and just startups in general coming through the angel group ecosystem. I saw the struggles they were going through. It's a big dichotomy. You had the Silicon Valley, you know, like the Stanford grads that are just popping out whatever software that does the same thing 10 others are doing. And they claim to be revolutionizing something, which they're not. And yet you had you know, startups everywhere else really struggling to figure out how to raise funding and uh, make the next step. And yet they had truly innovative technology, something they might have worked on for several years. It might not be as sexy, but it was amazing stuff worth funding. And it's like, OK, someone needs to help these guys. And, and that's what the angel groups do. And I wanted to do it on a little bit larger scale. And yet, and you're right. Yet At the same time, I love accelerator programs. I, I love YC for what they do. And they've gone through some changes, but YC and all the other ones. But they, if you look at their, their startups that they're bringing in, Silicon Valley is a minority, a very small minority. They are actually now global. They used to be over the country. And so is Alchemist, so is Techstars. They're all very, very international. And in fact, when I get all their deal flow and I get, like say, Techstars Airtable, it's less and less US and Canada, which I'm only doing right now, US, Canada, and Israel. And I have to filter through that because you know a lot of them are not. And a lot of them get coached very well to kind of become what I call like you know, fake Silicon Valley startups or Silicon Valley by name only kind of startups. I have a couple, some of my best startups are that way. In our portfolio, there's companies, there's one company in Spain doing very well. Founders in Spain, the whole engineering team in Spain, they're all in Madrid. They have an office in Madrid. On the surface, they appear to be a Silicon Valley company. They have an address on their website in San Jose and they're a Delaware C-Corp. And, you know, they got all the right law firms and accounting firms. So they make themselves venture backable that way. But in fact, no one's ever here. That's in a sense a mail drop. You know, so they're Silicon Valley on paper to get funded, but they're a, a, a comp they're in Spain. They're in Madrid, Spain. I have several companies from India that way. A lot of the Asian companies and um, a lot of the Eastern European startups, uh, even from Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe and uh, no like Poland, Poland and so forth, they know 
either they knew at inception or they find out through the accelerator programs if they apply to them once they go through them that they need to make their holding company, the parent company, be a Delaware C-Corp if they want to eventually be venture-backed. The easiest way to get venture-backing is be a Delaware C-Corp and be a U.S.-based company. And that's what they do. So they kind of on the surface become a Silicon Valley company, but that's just for funding purposes. And I consider them different than your actual, like say Stanford grads starting a SaaS business in, in Silicon Valley or in San Francisco. And I, that's a long answer to your question, but that's, <laughs> a, but that's my train of thought on that. Yeah. Well, Steve Case has been in the news recently about the rise of the rest and how these non-traditional VC markets outside of Boston and Silicon Valley are really doing well and there's great opportunity. And that's all been to your point accelerated with COVID and this distribution of the workforce across various cities. Talk a little bit about Southern California and what the ecosystem is like there. So the ecosystem here is amazing. There's always been some great university programs. And VC scene out here is great, but not great enough for the early stage. VCs that particularly focus on life sciences, because you have the life sciences ecosystem out here. You know, you have Amgen and you have everything else that's going out in, in uh, San Diego. So it's a great life sciences ecosystem, you know, biotech, medical devices, all that. And because of the people that are here for that, it's probably second just to Boston than that. Uh, so because of the people that are here for the life sciences, all the MD, PhDs that are leaving these larger biotech and starting startup, that there's VCs here focusing on that. And that's great. There's also obviously the social space and the e-commerce direct to consumer brands, as well as entertainment has always been big in LA. So there's VCs that are amazing in that like science and mucker and whatever, you know, they can really help a direct-to-consumer brand or e-commerce startup ex- accelerate their growth and they can help them figure out everything and do it right. They can add a lot of value. And that's why I don't do any of that. I'm focusing on tech startups because it's what's interesting to me. I want to work with those inventing the future. I don't care about optimizing sales for brands. And there's others who do it very, very well. So yes, in those areas, Southern California has great support. For everybody else, at the very early stage in Southern California, there isn't much. It's kind of just the angel groups. There's not a lot. There's some new micro VCs like ourselves coming up. There's several other VCs like us that I meet everywhere here. They're doing what I'm doing and there's more, but still probably not enough. Once you get to a series A, it doesn't matter where you are. The VCs will come from anywhere to you. It doesn't matter. So the the biggest names from Silicon Valley will come. If they don't have an LA branch, it doesn't matter. They will find you when you're raising a series A. You can go pitch them. You can submit to them and they will talk to you. But at that early pre-seed seed stage, Southern California in certain fields and just is a little bit lacking and is kind of stuck with um, with angels. But then again, you know, like you were saying before, the VCs are all looking for startups everywhere. The accelerators are looking for startups from everywhere globally, including Africa and Asia. And the last YC batch had a lot of African startups in it. Uh, it was very interesting. All over the Middle East, uh, so they're coming from over. So it really, doesn't matter anymore. You can be anywhere and apply to anybody, and if you're good, you'll get funded. But physical presence in Southern California for for early stage VCs is still not quite what it could be. It seems like there's more in Miami now than there is in LA. 
So I want to take that a step further. We're recording this in September of 2022. There's just been the last two, three years, a huge rise in valuation across tech startups. Tech was the place to invest. And there was a huge amount of IPO activity. I was reading today that something like 96% of those tech IPOs are now trading below their IPO strike price. What is the sentiment right now amongst tech investors? Are people bullish? Are they bearish? Is access to funding difficult? And especially within the lens of, I've heard this numerous times, some of the best companies are born during a recession or a financially difficult time. What are you seeing and feeling boots on the ground right now? Right. So it's kind of to unpack that about three different questions there. So yes, valuations were crazy and they are obviously coming back down, you know, kind of some kind of reversion to the mean. They're coming back down to some kind of normalized valuation. It's a lot slower for private companies. I've heard a stat that the, uh, in some research somewhere, that the private markets lag six to nine months behind the public markets. So that reset takes time because it's a psychological thing. It takes a while for both founders and uh, investors to adjust to a new normal and find a new rhythm. And of course, it all depends on whether or not we go into some big recession or not. And none of us can predict that. That's another area that I completely suck at. I have zero uh, ability to know what's going on on the macroeconomic side. But assuming we're not, assuming this is just a new normal, then yes, startups today are getting funded at better value, at lower valuations. I won't say better, it depends better for who, lower valuations than they were a year ago. What I'm seeing though is good startups are still raising money. From our existing portfolio, I'll give you some anecdotes. We've had several startups that late last year, early this year, announced they're going out for a Series A. So they're in our portfolio. They've been through a pre-seed, maybe a seed round, and they're very confident going out to a Series A. I had three of them raise. One of them wound up raising a very large check from a brand name Silicon Valley VC, but it was actually when the math came out was in sense a down round, which I was surprised. I did the math. Our price, the way it came out, our price per share, we had actually marked down our investment, which was already marked up. But we came in at pre-seed. It got a nice markup at seed. And now it got reset a little bit. The new price per share is actually a little lower on that Series A than on the seed round. But they raised a nice chunk of money. So that's great. We had another one raised at a markup. We had three that came back and said, we are pulling our Series A because I'm, and we're going to raise a small bridge instead, and we'll go back out in Q4. And what they were saying in more private conversations with them after that was that the signal they were getting from VCs is that, you know, yes, where they were last, you know, if this was six months ago, they would have got funded. But where they are today, they need to really hit their milestones and show it. It's not about projection showing you'll be there at year end. You actually want you there now. So you really have to hit your milestones. You need to really be wherever you need to be and not just look like you might get there. Those preemptive Series A's and Series B's are gone. VCs were fighting before to come in earlier and earlier. And they were preempting. They were coming in before a company was ready and before they were going out and offering them the Series A size check and valuation on the assumption that they'll grow into it. And that's gone. That ability to grow into the round is gone. You actually have to be qualified for the round at the time of funding, at now, at underwriting. You know, if they 
It's not, for example, if you look like, oh yeah, I'm going to have 100 enterprise customers and 1.5 million in ARR by year end, and here's my pipeline. Well, that would have got you funded and you maybe would have got a $5 million check at a 30 million valuation last year. Now they're like, no, come back when you actually sign those contracts. You know, how many, oh, I have 30 today, but my pipeline has me, I'm going to be at 100 companies by year end. It's like, no, sign them up, come back, talk to me when you're there. They're not afraid of missing out anymore. They're just, they're not taking it on the faith that you'll be there. That's really what's changed. At the early stage, that's what's changed. And that is a trickle down. And that's the earliest, early stage. So that's the furthest down compression. As you said, the IPOs are gone. And those ones that did go IPO are now worth less. So there's, as you see on the secondary market, late stage, like Series C, D, E, of these pre-IPO startups, the ones that were either planning to have an IPO now or sometime in the future and pulled it up. Those shares are all dramatically down, some as much as 60, 70% in valuation. So they're trading on the second, whether VCs are selling because they need to liquidate a position to close a fund or for whatever purposes, insiders are selling. Before secondary privates were going at a premium, now secondary privates across the board are mostly going at a discount to the last round. And sometimes a significant, sometimes it's just a five or 10% discount, but many others are going for very significant 50% plus discounts to the last round which says where the sentiment is. And I even heard of guys raising funds just to do that. They're raising funds to go buy positions in these mature pre-IPO companies at a discount. And they feel like you said, that goes to the best values are created in these kind of economies. Like, yeah, well, if you can buy into that company that didn't do its IPO and get the shares at a 60% discount today, maybe you'll do okay when they do do their IPO in two years. I don't know. I'm not a late stage investor, but I see the logic there. On the early stage side, yes, companies that can raise now, the investors are getting a better value. They're getting a more mature company at a better valuation than they were last year. So assuming, and here's the big assumption, that they can continue to raise, assuming that the Series A, B markets don't freeze up next year and these companies can raise their next round, then we'll do fine. My biggest fear is that some great startups that we invested in just due to timing will run out of money. They're run, some of them are running on fumes now and scrambling to raise bridge rounds because they can't. They thought they can raise a large round and now they can't, the economics have changed and they can't. And they're like, what do I do? How do I get the money I need to bridge me over to when I can go out there and raise a big round? And if it gets worse, and startups that we're funding now that we're underwriting for 18 months of runway come 18 months from now can't raise that round even though they hit their milestones because the goalpost is moving, then that could be a big risk. That can be a negative where everything we're doing today could be for naught. We can lose a lot of our portfolio uh, under that scenario. And where are you finding the most attractive opportunity right now? What's, what's the best idea, most exciting space to invest in? Well, for me, it's still everything. It's the use of emerging technologies to solve real world problems. And businesses are hurting with labor and labor costs are up and it's hard to find employees. That's an ongoing complaint uh, for you know the whole pandemic. So the startups that can give any vertical of any industry tools that reduce their dependency on labor should do well. Enterprises will listen. 
even though they say, oh, they don't have budgets for software. But if you're saying I'm replacing, I'm lowering headcounts, they'll listen. And I think uh, use and there's opportunity everywhere because the cutting edge of machine learning applications and AI and all that combined with everything else that's out there now, some IoT stuff, some 5G applications, you take all these cutting edge technologies and you combine them in different ways. You can very creatively and cleverly solve niche problems of industries that can add up to a pretty large market size, no matter where it might be. And I think that's a great opportunity in any form. I stay open-minded. I'm don't have I, I'm industry agnostic, vertical industry. I don't care whose problem you're solving. I just did one for the cannabis industry. I had no interest in cannabis, but there is an amazing business that is really helping the cannabis industry be more efficient. Saw what they're building and I saw the traction they have. It's like, yeah, you built a really nice tool and you getting you know people to pay for it. And you know, that's great. And I'm happy to invest, but I almost blew it off for being cannabis. And at the end of the day, it's not. It's an AI SaaS tool. And their customers happen to be in the cannabis business. So I, you know, and I, our fund luckily doesn't have any prohibition on that. We don't have any vice clauses in our fund. Some other funds cannot invest in there possibly. But that's an extreme example. But we've done everything from so in agriculture, there's an acute labor shortage in agriculture. So anything you can build that can help farmers use less labor and be more efficient. They're all ears. Uh, you always think of farmers as very slow movers, very hard to sell to. Nowadays, they're so desperate for help that they'll actually listen even to startups and take chances on experimental and take do pilot programs. I was amazed how open farmers are across the board to experiment and give startups a chance to pilot programs with them. And it's for everything. It doesn't matter if you're picking fruit or you know, trying to work on the health or reduce, you know, the amount of irrigation. And it, there's every part of farming for every, anything you can think of that has to do with farming, somebody's working on it. David, I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. If they have, please do leave a comment, a rating, and, and let David know what part of the conversation you found most compelling. I asked my guests the same question. Given everything you have going on in your life, you're looking at deals, you're going to meetups, you have wear a lot of different hats. Is there one thing in particular you do every day that helps bring you peace to your life? Hmm. I'll spend time with my kids and family. I, I do have two younger children and yeah, I start the day and end the day with them. I do the, I'm the, I'm the morning carpool. Nice. That's awesome. Well, David, thank you again for joining us. If people are interested in learning more about the firm, the investments you all are making, or just want to connect with you to be a resource within this ecosystem, what's the best way for them to get in touch? So our website, emerging.vc, you can find all the other links over there. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter. You look me up, you'll find me. Perfect. David, I want to thank you again for coming and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.